Radio Mano Papachango. Chris Ryan, thank you for having this platform. I'm just wandering around the woods in Taiwan. I'm really, really high. I have to hide my weed in, under a rock. Like I'm in, like, fucking Breaking Bad or something, because they treat it like it's heroin here. But this is what I do. It's my little treasure when the week is a little harder. Come up this mountain like some Greek sage. Kia ora. This is Sultry Sol from New Zealand. I'm currently greenskeeping at a very beautiful golf course on the beach. The place is mystical. There's sand dunes everywhere and quails running around, hares, even wild boars if you're lucky. Although the work isn't very mentally stimulating. But thankfully, I listen to podcasts and I've been really enjoying your one. Cheers. Hi, Chris. This is Ivana sending greetings from Ljubljana, Slovenia. I was born and raised in Belgrade, Serbia. And I lived in San Francisco for 10 years before moving back to Europe. Uh, thank you for your podcast. It helps me stay in touch with my Californian self. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm back in Topanga, California, coming to you from the canyon. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Tangentially Speaking, the podcast that some people can't spell or even know what the hell it means. I'm sympathetic. I get it. Tangential means uh, going off on a tangent, not sticking to the point. Kind of what I'm doing right now. I turn on the microphone and start talking and don't really know what the hell I'm going to say until I hear myself saying it. I do know, however, that I'm going to mention the sponsor of this week's podcast, which is Lilo, the Cadillac or... Maserati or Rolls-Royce of vibrator companies, sex toy companies, technological um, eroticism coming at you, so to speak. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I, I saw on Instagram a couple of, there was a video, an Instagram story of uh, two women. One of them is Survival Chick who has a farm up near uh, Sacramento somewhere with lots of goats. And my buddy Simon goes up there and he told me about her and the farm. So I was following her. I follow her on Instagram. She's cool. She's funny. She's got this walnut farm with all these animals. And I guess like supermodels go up there to get to do photo shoots. I don't know what's going on. I, I haven't been up there yet. But anyway, she, there was an Instagram story. And apparently... She listens to this podcast and she and her friend were in the car and they were listening to me talking about vibrators. And from the looks on their faces, they were uh, kind of creeped out and confused. Like, who is this dude and why is he talking to me about vibrators? I get it. I get it. That's legit. I can understand that. Uh, but because of who I am, and God, Mom, I hope you're not listening to this episode. Uh, I've given away a lot of vibrators over the years. I think, 
you know, it's it's a, a gesture of solidarity with women. You know, it's like, I don't know, like some of my best friends are women, <laughs> even black women. <laughs> um, and, you know, while it's not something that I necessarily know all that much about because I've never used a vibrator on myself, uh, I have sort of been secondarily involved in this process and I can tell you I mean I I used to take um, Hitachi magic wands to Europe I'd buy them in the states take them to Europe because they didn't have them they didn't sell them in Europe for some weird reason and the problem is I'd have to buy them in the U.S. take them to Europe and then buy a converter uh, or an inverter or whatever that electrical thing is um, to switch the current from the European uh, 220 volt current to the American 115 um, so that they wouldn't burn out the motor on the thing. And then I'd give it as a gift to whatever woman I was involved with uh, along with this electrical box. And, okay, you got to plug this into the wall, then you plug this into here. And that. and they were kind of, I mean, they're they're a machine, you know. They're like a, looks more like a medical device. And actually, they they were really good for back pain and stuff like that. Um, anyway, what's my point? My point is Hitachi doesn't make them anymore. They they decided they don't want to be associated with, you know, this dirty sex toy stuff. So they are no longer on the market. And now Lilo makes one that is just as powerful, smaller, much nicer designed and uh wireless so the world is getting better people civilization what a gift being ironic of course there are some things about about technology that are wonderful and i guess let's be honest about it vibrators can be one of them now i've also heard people say oh i don't know vibrators you know they they make you numb and they make regular sort of biological sex less uh, stimulating well of course you know moderation in all things but let's face it you know in the right situation vibrators are great and if you're going to have a vibrator or you're going to get one for someone else lilo is the way to go they are uh, fantastic they're well designed they're waterproof so they can be used in the shower they can be cleaned really easily, of course, taken in the shower with you. They don't even, and, and they don't look tacky. They're not like these weird plastic things they used to sell in Times Square. You're probably too young to remember in, you know, with the magazines and the blow up sex dolls and all that stuff. No, it's not like that. These are really cool. And um, the, the kind of material they use feels really nice on your hand. They're USB rechargeable, waterproof. Some of them have Bluetooth. They have this thing that's like a remote control so your partner can buzz you from across the room. I mean, imagine how that would light up a party. So anyway, check them out, Lilo.com and 15% off any full price items if you use the coupon code Chris Ryan. Never did I think that Chris Ryan would be a discount code on a sex toy website, but life has some interesting twists and turns, ladies and gentlemen. 
This week's episode is with Sean Dinkle. Sean is a therapist based in Colorado, and he specializes in dealing with male rage. Um, he himself is not enraged. He's a very chill dude, very smart guy. And he's done a lot of thinking about what it is that frustrates men, freaks them out, and how to deal with this. This this guy, I really enjoyed this conversation. He um, He's, as I say, he's very thoughtful. And as you'll hear, his personal experience um, informs what he's doing in the world as as I guess it does for all of us, you know, there's this truism that I often return to that says we live our parents' unlived lives. And I think that's um, often so illuminating. You know, think about your parents or or the adults who raised you. Think about their frustrations, their failures, their disappointments. And then look at your life and see, are you flowing into the vacuums that they have open? Are you, is the course of your life in some way uh, a response? Of course it is. It's a response to what you saw when you were growing up. And it can be a, it can be a deeply positive response. In my own case, I have often thought that the stability that my parents gave me by sticking together uh, through some tough times when I was, you know, I don't know, 10 to 13 maybe. I I sensed that they went through some challenging times and their marriage um, experienced some difficulties and they they worked it out. They got through it and... I think one of the reasons that they worked it out is that they were both really committed to each other, loved each other, and that they were also committed to the idea of providing as much stability and unconditional love as they possibly could for my sister and me. And uh, it worked. And, you know, I feel no need to do that. I've felt no need to have kids because I felt like my parents did a really good job. And I, 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 I look at my dad, for example, and I see his parents didn't do a very good job. And so my dad felt compelled to do it right, to give his kids what he hadn't received. And so I think part of that dynamic can be like i'm going to do th- i'm going to do it right i'm going to prove this can be done right you didn't give me what i needed but goddamn it i'm going to give that to my kids and that's a fucking beautiful thing um or as in Sean's case i'm going to make my life's work a response to some of the shit that i had to put up with as a kid so that other people won't have to put up with that there's there's something deeply noble about that, you know, about not perpetuating the pain and trauma that was inflicted on you 
and in fact working actively to try to make sure nobody ever has to deal with that because so much of what we see is people just retransmitting the same trauma we see the same traumas cascading down the generations you know grad dad beat up my dad so my dad beat me up and god damn it you little bastard I'm gonna smack you around too because that's just the way it is so when somebody steps off that you know sort of intentionally derails themselves and says no I'm gonna swallow that I'm gonna go to my grave holding that I'm not gonna pass that on to anyone else man there's something really beautiful and admirable about that and uh, you'll hear in this conversation that that's something that Sean does and is doing. So kudos to him, Sean Dinkle. Um, you'll hear he's got contact information if you're in Colorado and you're looking for um, a therapist who works with this kind of stuff. Maybe you can get in touch with him. He's based in uh, Hot Sulphur Springs. Interestingly, I recorded this conversation with him uh the morning that I was about to find out that the engine in the van was a goner I left his place we left his place drove to um a garage pulled over and said hey can you listen to this it sounds kind of weird to me and the guy said yeah listen to it he listened he said "Ooh, that doesn't sound right I turned that off right away we turned it off, and he pulled the oil filter and looked, and there were little pieces of metal, visible pieces of metal in the oil filter. And he said, dude, I don't think you could drive this another five miles. That was the end of the road. We didn't know it, though, when, when I was recording this conversation with Sean. All right, before I get to the conversation, uh, I, I've been thinking, you know, like, it's a good mental exercise sometimes to picture the, um, uh, to try to argue your opponent's perspective. So somebody who you think is totally full of shit, try to think about what you agree with them on. So, and people have, some people have written to me and said, ah, oh, you're always trashing Trump. You know, what do you think he's totally, look, I think Trump is ridiculous as a human being. I think he's a reflection of all the worst things about American society. And in that sense, he's illuminating, right? He doesn't give a shit about history. He doesn't give a shit about truth. He doesn't give a shit about his absurdities. All he gives a shit about is satisfying this very adolescent sense of what success means. The hot wife, doesn't matter if she hates your guts, doesn't matter... If she just married you for the money, she's hot. Uh, the money, doesn't matter if it's real money. Maybe you're in debt, but it seems like you got a lot of money. Gold-plated everything. Gold-plated ego. Get your name on some big buildings. That's America, or at least the worst parts of America. And in that sense, he's a reflection. But there are some things I agree with him about. For example, right now, as I speak, uh, 
there's all this stuff about how he apparently said to the Russians, yeah, I know you fucked around in our election, but yeah, we do that too. It's, that's just the way the world works. And I, on MSNBC, all these, you know, liberals are screaming, oh my God, how can you equate America with Russian foreign policy? I got news for people. The CIA has fucked around in other people's elections since it was founded. In fact, that's one of the main reasons it was founded. Off the top of my head, Iran, uh, we... We, when I say we, I mean the U.S. Uh, I think this was before it was called the CIA um, and British Petroleum in the U.K. We knocked out, I think assassinated, the duly elected president of Iran and installed the Shah of Iran, who was a fucking dictator. We trained his military in torture techniques, in uh, how to round up, identify, torture, and eliminate political opposition. Look up the School of the Americas. Google that. We've trained dictators all over the world. Again, when I say we, I mean America. We trained Ferdinand Marcos's people in the Philippines. We assassinated the the duly elected president of the Congo and put in Mobutu Seke Seko or whatever his name was, who murdered hundreds of thousands of people. We taught them how to do that and we put them into power. Pinochet in Chile, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia. We, we arrested and assassinated Arbenz, the president of Guatemala, because he wanted to give people free schooling and repatriate some of the fruit farms that United Fruit Company had taken from the people of Guatemala. We have a history of doing this. So all this outrage, how could you possibly say that America has ever interfered in a foreign election? Holy shit, name some fucking countries we haven't interfered in. That's the truth. Now, I'm not saying... I'm not saying it's totally simple. I'm not saying that America is always evil. What I am saying is that we have blood on our hands, that we fuck around all over the world and have fucked around all over the world since World War II, uh, at least. I mean, for crying out loud, the Monroe Doctrine, when was Monroe president? In the 1800s, I believe. The Monroe Doctrine said... The Western Hemisphere is ours, Europe. Stay out. Well, what the hell did the people in South America have to say about that? What do you mean the Western Hemisphere is yours? How do you think Brazil and Argentina and Chile and Venezuela and Colombia and Mexico and everybody else felt about that? What the fuck are you talking about? It's yours. It's like me declaring that you know, the west side of Topanga is mine. Well, uh, maybe the other people in Topanga don't agree with that, right? Anyway, so I, had, I agree with Trump uh, when he said, yeah, Russia fucked around in our elections, but we fuck around in theirs and in everybody else's. He's right about that. <clears throat> he's still a total douchebag, but, you know, he's right about that. All right, that's enough from me. This is going out as soon as I finish recording it and editing it. 
which means that it's the day before Civilized to Death comes out. Holy shit. So if you haven't ordered it, today's a good day to order it. Uh, Carpe diem, you know. Uh, It comes out tomorrow. It would be great if it got a big surge of sales in that first week. If you can help me out with that, that would be much appreciated. Uh, What else am I telling you? Lilo, Lilo Lilo.com, L-E-L-O.com. Chris Ryan, discount code, 15% off all full-priced items. And they've got a bunch of stuff on sale as well. So there you go. And what else? If you want to hear more from Sean at the end of this conversation... He was on uh, A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World as well. So that's a different take. That's Anya Kotz talking to him and he's sort of coming at it from a woman's perspective, a millennial's perspective, obviously. So it's a different kind of conversation uh, covering some of the same material, but from a very different perspective. So if you enjoy this conversation, I hope you will check that out. I'm going to play you into this with a song that just seemed kind of, you know, when I thought about male rage, uh, obviously there's lots of rap music that's kind of enraged, um, you know, politically justified, of course. This song is called Tear Shit Up, and it's by an artist named Paris. I believe the album is Sonic Jihad. <laughs> great title all right this is tear shit up by paris followed by my conversation with sean dinkle thanks for your support everybody thanks for listening great to be with you bringing you back what you're missing hip-hop hard truth Funk.com, worldwide station. You in tune to the most dangerous crew on fire. Who getting mashed on, bitch, get wide. With these field niggas serenades, we break wide in the land of the weak home of the slave. We rise to protect. They serving us with sticks and shots. But who protect us from these murderous cops? Who's heroes? You can keep your flags. I'm out. I wrap a chain around the precinct and burn shit down. Fuck the police. I'm thinking how to feed my seed. Bumping DPs, bailing down the block on D's. It's the same shit every day. Seem to mow a nigga build they want to take away. Like a slave when you can't eat, you can't sleep, can't seem to find peace. Only thing the streets see is police and poverty. Bitch, don't start with me. I can't fade the bullshit noise that the radio play. When the world want to be like and talk like and act like and rap like the black life is all gats and crack pipes. I spit right, nigga, what? My shit's tight. Who snitched? Nigga, a bitch to choose sides when we roam. We beat back, attack of the clones. What kind of shit y'all niggas is on? We hit home. Let's feel so the people can feel this real talk from the Bay and all in between the New York collar. Just the way we bomb when we come around. Still keep it on the map for the underground. Fuck the system, I'ma holler with a black fist. It's hard truth with my soldiers, we still blitz. And who's who with these gangsters? See a vet, these rap niggas or the government. Take a guess. See, we blessed with the speech that can reach oppressed communities worldwide. So we don't waste time with stress freedom and serve them with a the style. Motherfuck smiling, who wanna ride? Rap 
belly up the crowd. Full hollow tips, cyanide squibs. Power to the people with rocks, banana clips. See a struggle for the streets, motherfuck the blend. Nowadays, radio make it harder to bring. Real shit to the people, it's deeper than me. They entice with the conflict, dice and blow trees. Corporatized by the vow, they smile and fear. Black bodies in the pen, it's the men they kill. Three strikes, whose life? Not my life, yours. Put the men in the prison, turn the women to whores. Ignore cries of the people, but time is up. Stay tuned for the sequel. We building a bus, going they walk fuck all laws. I won't attack this bullshit. Hold them accountable for they acts. Militant and political, get heroin one I whack the smile off the many mouths, mug like a gun And I remember 99 going on tour with Big Pun Getting this fast rap cash from them six-week runs See, I done learned from them general, the wild entourages Fucking like rappers, but don't wanna be fathers Fucking up they hotel rooms, stay on some star shit Know your role, play your position, rule four You know you can't fade it, this gang's rules related We bang for change, it ain't no game, you can't hate it I wanna slap Bush and his mammy For how we did the Haitians in Miami That's my fam, Coupe Jack, Boule Kai So please die, crack a die that's the 22 generations of genocide You see, that's why we get hot, just to get by See, we sit and wait until it's dark outside And then we ride on our enemies You can't depend on me If you a pig, then you can't be no friend of me See, it's been 33 years since Fred been gone He was murdered on the same day Jay-Z was born for real 12-4-69, same year when they take one from us Then another appears We gon' take this time to commemorate NRD National Revolutionary Day, say all right i'm in where am i hot sulfur springs or sulfur hot springs or hot sulfur springs hot sulfur springs yeah. Uh, 708 last Colorado instance. and what's the elevation the elevation here is 7700 or That's a little bit above high. that yeah yes yeah. yeah, so we're up here yeah so are you uh training for a marathon or something no I'm actually acclimated to this stuff because I've been in Colorado my whole life oh, right um, so I'm with Sean Dinkle by the way <laughs> yeah, <thanks>. psychotherapist <laughs> yep uh how do you describe yourself well so uh psychotherapist is fine um in terms of you know professional designations, I'm licensed both as a professional counselor in the state of Colorado as well as a certified addiction counselor. So those are the licenses that I hold. Um, previously, I was state approved um, to facil- facilitate um, treatment for domestic violence offenders, and that's where I've probably the bulk of my work comes from. I've facilitated somewhere in the neighborhood of over 5,000 groups in that area. In terms of individual counseling, probably another 4,000 on top of that. How many people in a group typically? So groups are typically eight to 12. Um, and out of all the uh, things in grad school that I found to not translate to the professional world, that one did translate. But less than eight, the group functions very differently. More than 12, it functions very diff- hmm. differently. So. I always tried to average, you know, uh, 10, 10, you know, 10, 10 people. A so, group. and they're, they're men, men. Yeah. So I work primary. So in, in this state, you have to get a different certification if you're working with females or if you're working with, uh, tra- you know, the uh, homosexual or, you know, they, they've got different designations and I don't know what mm. they all are now, but somehow in their head, they think that the core issues, I guess, are different. Mm. Um, I don't 
subscribe. To Interesting. Yeah. So, so it's a different certification yeah. to depending on the population yep. you're working with. Yep. Yep. So you're working that, I mean, you and I have corresponded, uh, well, as I, I said, yeah, we yeah. just had lunch and I mentioned I went back and looked at our correspondence and saw that you'd sent me uh, an email a few years ago uh-huh. um, that I never responded to. Which I don't blame you. <laughs> so let me it apologize right here. <laughs> it was, but I, I read it and it was very, um, it was very uh, heartfelt yeah. and uh, you talked a lot about your childhood uh-huh. and... Um, which I guess you had a rough relationship with your dad. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's what, you know, Do you want to talk about that a little I bit? I can talk about anything. And at this point in my journey, there's nothing that I'm not comfortable talking about in terms of my personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always admired the people who have paid that way for me, whether it's, you know, reading a, a you know, a book that somebody had talked about their journey. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of guidance. And so all that stuff was, uh, was a value to me. And I think at this stage, I've done enough interpersonal work to be able to have those conversations without it being overwhelming. I don't really have a huge charge. There may be some sadness here and there if I'm talking about, you know, a significant loss or whatever, particularly my dad. And that was a hard one. I mean, that's, that's been a, that's been a, 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 yeah, that's, that's been a challenge. I mean, there's no question. He died, I take it. No. So he didn't die. Um, we no longer have a relationship. Um, So he, let me see if I can actually summarize this so it makes sense. He was very abusive throughout my life, uh, mostly psychological. So the thing that replays in my head and a lot of the work that I've had to do personally is getting, working around the imprint of you're a lazy piece of shit, you're never going to be anything. So I did suffer some physical abuse, not much. So he wasn't that kind of guy, very manipulative um, and just a lot of mind games and that he also played with my mom and then, you know, the other 400 or so partners he's probably had. I mean, he's, he's, he's done some damage, not just to me, but just uh, in, and um, he has his own trauma that he never worked through. And he unfortunately perpetuated that onto other people. And I didn't want that for myself. So you're the only child. So I have a half brother um, that he had from another gal, and he's uh, eight years younger than I am, uh-huh. and we're fairly distant. He lives in Wyoming, and um, yeah, we don't uh, we didn't grow up together, so right. we grew up in separate homes. And do your parents separated? I take it. Yeah, they separated it uh, when I was seven, and mm. it was odd because I remember it vividly, being very glad, and I don't think that's most kids' experience right. that that um, this is a this is a very beneficial thing. And I, I was, I was happy to see that finally. You stayed with your mom. So I did. And I saw my dad. Um, it was the only thing in their relationship that they actually worked out on their own fairly amicably, which was weird because fighting and yelling and screaming was just daily. I mean, it was Mm. constant and neither one of them could, could communicate for anything. And so, um, but somehow they got through a divorce, no lawyers, no nothing, and uh, no custody arrangements, no child support. And my dad always, uh, he never neglected you know, his financial responsibilities. He did show up in that, in that capacity. We still grew up fairly poor. Um, so when I was in school, I would stay with my mom and I'd see my dad on the weekends. And they both tried to make sure that they lived in this, a similar proximity to make mm. that possible. So they did, you know, um, from that standpoint, they didn't do too bad. Um, but growing up with my mom, um, you know, she didn't work. That was one of the ways that my dad controlled um, her 
and uh, in his own, you know, kind of perpetuating violence and making sure that he didn't get left and things of that nature. So um, when she finally left, one of the things that she had to do was, you know, find work. And then so my grandparents, you know, raised me for a lot of the time um, when they weren't around because they had to make ends meet. So, um, um, but yes, well, anyway, I got off, uh, off track. So at one point in time, and I think this is worth uh, mentioning and kind of how I got into the field as well, is that so the only legal trouble I've ever had was um, from an assault uh, charge when I got when I was 18 or 19, and that was against my father. Mm. And um, I'd asked him after something had happened, you know, sincerely, you know, why did you have kids? Because it was more of that put down stuff, yeah. lazy piece of shit, you're never going to be anything. And I just, I just I couldn't wrap my head around it. And I just said, you know, why, why did you have me? And I was hoping for a sincere answer of why I don't, you know, and, uh, and he laughed and it was an immediate reaction, you know? And, uh, and so I hit him and, and then, you know, he had called the police. And so there was a, you know, an assault charge that came after that. that he pressed let, charges. Yeah. He actually went to court cause he wanted me to do time for that. Yeah. He showed up at that court. You know, I was thinking when you were talking about him showing up weekends and trying to stay near and all yeah. that, I was thinking like, why did he make that effort? Um, you know, what, what's made it really hard for me is that there's a, there's a side of him that cares, but he's not able to be caring Hmm. because of his own damage is the best way that I could understand it. The other part of that too, he's, uh, his insecurities, um, manifest in trying to, you know, for power and control. And so as long as he's got somebody underneath him. Um, psychologically that he can manipulate or whatever. And that's, that's not always been me. That's been, you know, women that he's been with and things of that nature. So, um, do you know yeah. the details of his trauma and the way he was my, raised? My grandfather was very, uh, from his accounts. And I, I have no reason to not believe this was fairly physically uh, abusive with him. And as a result, my dad made some pretty decent efforts not to do that. He only saw abuse as being physical. Right. So as yeah. long as I'm not hitting you, exactly. anything goes. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It, you know, when I was reading your initial email mm-hmm. this morning, uh, I was thinking about this uh, Netflix special I saw recently with Bruce Springsteen. Mm. Do you happen to see that? I've heard you talk about it on uh, another episode, so I have not seen it, but I've heard you. Yeah, it's really it. Inter- it, it, it was really interesting. It's a one man show that he did on Broadway. And, um, you know, he, he talks about, I mean, there are some parallels, I think, but obviously a lot uh, different. You know, he talks about how essentially what he says is that his onstage persona is a fraud mm-hmm. because it's based upon his father. Yes. And his father's experiences of yeah. working in a factory yeah. and getting laid off and yeah. never having enough money and, you know, being exhausted and angry and, yep. and disappointed in life and the, all that pathos mm-hmm. that you hear in so much of Bruce's music. music yeah. He's saying, like, I'm what I'm channeling is my father's life. Yeah. And my father and I are not close. Yeah. You know, we can't yeah. talk because yeah. of all that. Yeah. All those wounds yep. make it impossible for yeah. us to communicate. So I built my life in a way as a response to, to his experience. Yeah. And I was thinking to like... almost keep that relationship in a sense. In that, a way. Yeah, yeah. In a way. It's like it's a distant kind yeah. of dance in a way. There's still a connection, yeah. um, even if it's not... 
personal. Well, it's interesting, and I don't know if this translates perfectly, but I remember for me when I was consciously aware of it, and I re- when I first, the first stage of, of, I think, my evolution was, okay, the father that I wanted and needed is not going to show up. But my dad had the capacity to be fun in mm. certain capacities. As long as he had no responsibility, he had a capacity to be fun. And so... From that standpoint, I thought, okay, well, you have a choice here. You're not going to get a dad-dad. That's just, that's not in the cards, but you can have a friend. So then that's what I opted for. Mm. But what I realized later is that that required a lot of suppression for who I was. Right. It wasn't really registering. Um, my first um, experience with ayahuasca was, was what kind of shook that loose. Um, I had been fairly repressed in a way that I didn't recognize. And... So following that experience, the reaction that I had with him when I came back home, uh, it was an interaction that was fairly benign compared to how he normally can, you know, how, how elevated he can get. My whole body started trembling. Mm. And it was interesting because I went down there because I wasn't in a good psychological place and I wanted my own help and treatment. And, uh, and I felt like the therapeutic options I had available to me just weren't strong enough for what I needed. And so I was acutely aware of that. So I go down there, I come back. And I think in a lot of ways, what I wanted from that ayahuasca experience, at least the first time, was to reinforce my armor. Hmm. Um, when I reflect on it, I'm like, I wanted to not get hurt anymore. Hmm. And what I got right. was a stripping of my armor. Right. So then I come back, I have this interaction, um, and I start trembling and shaking. And I, I can feel it even a little bit as we talk about it. And it became evidently clear, like, you cannot be well and have this in your life. And so, you know, we talk about the integration with ayahuasca. A lot of people, you know, they think, well, I just go do the treatment. I'll get the benefits from it and I don't have to do anything. For me, my experience was, no, you go there and you get the insights to then put back into your life on some level. And so that was one of the very unfortunate insights that I had is that Mm. I started to really recognize them. I couldn't turn, I couldn't turn away from this is what's happening to me. And so it's like, you know, if you got strep throat and you go get an antibiotic, but you keep hanging around with people with strep throat, you're going to keep contracting that. Right. So, and I thought nothing I've tried at this point is working. And so I just said, I don't think I can do this anymore. And then mm. he really went off the rails after that. Um, and then that led to harassment uh, and eventually a, a pretty, pretty pronounced death threat you know he was that he sent to my wife that he's going to kill me and smile about it and you know this and the other he used some cryptic language i'm going to take him out and i have a way to do it if he you know so yeah it was it was it was it was sick and disgusting but it reaffirmed yeah this is behind that the whole time yeah maybe he didn't talk that way until now but that was behind it the whole time and then, um, so I had to, you know, I had to go through a bunch of nonsense, get a protection order, which is embarrassing as hell, you know, um, yeah. especially in a small community. And I thought it was gone. You know, I thought that that was pretty much done. And then I just needed to work on healing from that, um, which I've been diligent about as, to the best of my ability. And then um, a couple years go by and... I get a letter in the mail that somehow he found a loophole. He didn't show up to the original hearing, so the judge made it permanent. I thought when it was permanent, it's permanent. Um, but uh, somehow, if you do certain things and you didn't show up for that original hearing, you can reopen the case. And so I had to go in there um, into that courtroom. And, 
Yeah, and, and testify one last time. And that was one of the most challenging things I've ever had to do. And actually, I think if I didn't have my wife's support, I, I, I would have left and just let the protection order be vacated. It was that, and it was that, that hard, that difficult. What does a protection order do tangibly? Well, so he doesn't like jail. I mean, he's really afraid of that stuff. And so it, 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 if I say, hey, I, if I set a boundary... I don't want communication or I need space or whatever. None of that's ever respected. He's very narcissistic. So whatever, you know, whatever he would want or need comes first. Um, other needs, you know, people's needs come second. And if you do anything that upsets that individual, then you're going to get punished for it. So a lot of it was, again, more, you know, kind of verbal retaliation, like what I'd mentioned. And so um, a protection order basically means that there's consequences because I can't, I'm not the law, I can't do anything. So it puts a legal barrier there that if something would happen, then I would have legal recourse. Um, so if he showed up at your door, yep, yep, that, yeah, he, yeah, that yeah. would be an offense. Yep, it was like a... a yeah. Is it a mile radius or something like that? You know, and I don't know the specific details mm -hmm. of, which is interesting you ask that, but, but there always is a specification that can be modified per, you know, per the judge's request. And I don't remember mm -hmm. what mine is, but yeah, I right. can't make any contact with Has him. he ever been in jail? Uh, never for long term, but lots of times short term uh, you know, for DUIs or for domestic violence or for right. know, things like right. that. Yeah, yeah. You, ever, you ever have a session, a group session, and a guy starts talking and you hear your dad absolutely um you know and and, and uh yeah i mean i guess the simple answer is yeah absolutely you hear that same persona being projected i don't think it's completely uncommon like i don't think i'm the only one that's had that experience and i'm you know, I might be one of the only ones that have gotten to this level of, you know, involvement with trying to separate or, or one of the rare ones. But, yeah, I don't think that that's all that rare. And so that, that personality type would show up quite frequently. And in some ways, it was beneficial. Now, if I hadn't done any of my personal work, I think it would have been completely damaging, both for me and the client. Um, but having that and, 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 you know, and growing up with, like I've always said, my dad was the best manipulator that I'd ever known. So... I could smell through bullshit in groups pretty easily. Mm. Um, so I developed that capacity from living it. Yeah. Yeah. Strange that on one side of your life, you're separating from his rage yeah. and another big part of your yeah. life, you're immersing yourself uh -huh. in male rage. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Have you worked with victims of these guys, their kids, their wives? Did so recently I started doing that like maybe four years ago. Um, and, uh, yeah, so not, not a lot. I mean, it's definitely balanced more to the offender side than to the victim mm. side. But here's what's interesting. The offenders are also victims. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. They're you not know, victims of their offense. As, as I said the word victim, I yeah, thought that. Yeah, like, yeah. everybody's a yeah, victim yeah, in that. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, what about your own rage? Well, so like when you were talking about, yeah. you know, um, as a kid saying, oh, I can't have the dad I want yeah. like other kids, yeah. dads, but I can sort of settle for this version. What I thought I could do. Yeah. I mean, that little boy is burying a lot of his own rage. Like, why the hell not? Why can't I have a dad? Why yeah. do I have to deal with all yeah. this? Yeah. So. And this segues really nicely to what I've, uh, I've, hopefully I'll answer that, what I've learned therapeutically speaking as well. One of the things that allowed me to facilitate as many groups as I did uh, professionally or get the referrals that I, that I got um, was because of the fact that I was 
one of the reasons was I was fairly good at predicting who would reoffend and who wouldn't. And um, so, and one of the ways in which I did that, one of the things that the men that I was working with had taught me, and this hopefully will circle back around to my own rage, is that anger is a particular kind of emotion in that it's what I refer to as a secondary emotion. So it can never exist by itself. So if it's there, it's there plus something. Mm. So there's always a primary emotion feeding that. Um, and if that primary emotion is identified and expressed in its normal adaptive way, that's, that essentially deactivates that anger mm. to a certain degree. So the two most primary examples of, or the two most common examples of primary emotions that then could lead into anger if unidentified and or unexpressed, um, sadness and fear, which I felt a lot of as a kid. So therapeutically, working through that feeling the fear that i felt as a child dissipated the rage later on obviously when i started when we started the conversation i said that, you know at 19 it came out in a way that i didn't recognize that it was there but that led me into my first positive therapeutic experience which has you know been off and on and continued since then over the last you know 20 years not not continuously in my 20s things were going pretty well and i felt like i had gotten the whole thing mined out that wasn't the case, but, but you know, it's chunk by chunk. But the more that I do therapeutic work around pain and sadness, then I notice I don't, I don't, I don't feel that sense. Really interesting uh, point here is that when I got into grad school, and I don't know if you had to do this, uh, I had to take an MMPI for my mm. master's, and uh, you know, big personality inventory is a four-hour thing, and there's a question on there, and it says. Uh, and I thought about lying, and I don't do that, but I wanted into grad school. And the question is, and I, I knew this thing was gonna throw it off. And uh, the question is, do you love your father? And uh, so I, you know, I hesitated, and, uh, but I answered it honestly, um, and I put no. And at that time, he was in my life, in my life as this friend character that I'd mentioned. And um, if you were to give me that test right now, I would answer differently. Hmm. I would answer, yes, I love my father even though I see no way he would ever be in my life, that I would ever allow that back in. So what is that? What, what is love in that yeah. sense? Well, and so in that sense... You I, see where he's coming from? Yeah, I mean, I've got a compassion for that individual. He's, un, he's very unwell, but I couldn't have that compassion if, if I hadn't worked through some of the pain that came out of that relationship. Right. There wouldn't be room for it. I, I wouldn't be able to see it in that lens. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that I don't have that boundary. Yeah. And so part of that goes, yeah, I'm not getting anywhere near this. This isn't good for me. So I can hold that space to protect myself and then still go, I wish you absolutely well in recovery yeah. and healing. I can't be a part of it right. anymore because it's not. It's, it's so detrimental to me. And I don't have any more capacity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that that understanding of love, I, I feel like I've as I've gotten older, it's become my dominant understanding yeah, of what yeah, love is. Yeah. And in seen in that sense, I can't really think of anyone that I wouldn't love. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. like if you really know where people are coming yeah. from, no matter no matter how horrible they appear to be from outside, yeah. if you really see where they're coming from, and nobody chooses yeah. to, you know, I think about dogs a lot. I, you know, n no puppy ever is born mean. Mm -mm. 
You know, it just doesn't happen. Absolutely. They're born wanting to cooperate, wanting to play, you know. Wanting love. Wanting love, <laughs> and right. if they don't get it, then they turn. That's how you make a mean, right? That's you exactly. abuse a dog, a puppy, and you get a mean dog. And uh, people are the same. I, I don't think any, and maybe, I don't know, maybe psychopaths. Maybe there are people with a brain abnormality that, but I think the vast majority, in my experience, are just people who are suffering so much. Well, and I would say even, and Alice Miller did a really good job of looking at folks like Hitler and Stalin in her book, For, for Your Own Good, um, and really trying to dig into their childhoods. Um, and, you know, so you've got these people who became sociopathic and certainly, likely, have a brain abnormality. But again, we have to ask the question, why that brain abnormality? Uh, you know, and then this gets back to nature and nurture. The evidence these days is pretty damn overwhelming that it's predominantly nurture or the mm. lack thereof. And that's another thing that we don't look at. So sometimes we'll look at, you know, was this person beat with extension cords? Certainly we recognize that as abuse. One of the uh, parts of abuse that has been foreshadowed is neglect. Uh, yeah. The, the withholding of love, the right. withholding of affection. Um, right. Yeah. So, so, you know, and the damages that do. And what Gabor Mate says is who you've had, you know, um, which... I really appreciate because he says it's not always the bad things that happened that shouldn't have. It's also the good things that should have happened but didn't. That didn't, yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah, so, so far, I've not come across any compelling evidence that this is a born trait, um, that this is, con- this is subject. And even when we look at epigenetic um, material now, that that is environmental dependent. So we do see changes in gene expressions mm. based on the experiences right. that a person has. Yeah. So Gamora also says this too, is that, like if we look at rising rates of depression and anxiety, and if we see this as completely explained as a brain abnormality that's chemically dependent, well, genes don't change in 30 years. Mm. They just don't change that fast. So what else is going on here? And so the epigenetic argument of the conditions that genes turn on or off based on the environmental experiences and that, you know, Bruce Perry, uh, you know, who I was talking about earlier, you know, the child psychiatrist who he's, he says, you know, the brain is a social organ and that's been well documented. So we do see changes, but why are those changes? Yeah. 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 Maltreatment or neglect is typically. Well, and also uh, you're, yeah. ta- you're talking about these different types of abuse that leads back to the whole domestic violence situation. Yeah. Do you think that women are less abusive than men or it just doesn't manifest physically? You know, that's interesting. Um, and so I only, you know, and, and I'll always state if I feel like I've got some fact, you know, you know, data to support what I'm saying. So this is more of an opinion piece um, that, well, actually, I, I do have some data. So, so what little research on that topic that I know of suggests that, that women, um, that it's fairly balanced, but when men act out, it's far more damaging and far more impactful. So they're physically, physically, absolutely. So in terms of the, what we see in terms of aftermath, but in terms of, you know, can women be violent? Um, Yeah, absolutely. But a lot of times too, and one of the things I think is happening is that a lot of times when men are violent, they're trying to get the woman to do something. And a lot of times when women are violent, they're trying to get something to stop, trying to stop something from Mm. happening. So it's a different side of the control. Yeah. 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 I'm just thinking, um, you know, in terms of uh, abuse of children, for Mm -hmm. example, let's say um, your father was emotionally abusive. A lot of 
a lot of kids grow up with mothers who are emotionally abusive. Absolutely. Um, the truism is that women are much better at emotional things than men are. Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, on average, a woman's going to be more um, sensitive to where you're coming from. They tend to make better therapists, according mm-hmm. to this truism. Um, and so what I'm wondering is in that context when you're you're talking to men who've you know i guess these men are referred to your groups through the criminal system mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. so you either go and do this group or you're going to jail or uh-huh. um so a lot of them don't want to be there a lot Initially, of them yeah. see themselves as victims which we've already stipulated they are typically in, a, in childhood it just wasn't anywhere in around their offense and i okay. used to say that to people because they would come in describing their offense themselves in the offense that led them there right. as being a victim. And what I would say is that there's likely some truth that you've been a victim. Right. I and mean, I can meet you there. Right. But it was nowhere near and around your offense. And if well, we can get to but that. What original, if it is? What if Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. So so yeah, the, yeah. the primary yeah. emotions you mentioned were mm-hmm. fear and sadness. sadness. Mm-hmm. I would say isn't shame also I absolutely shame yeah. generates a lot of yeah, rage. Absolutely. Uh, particularly burning really hot rage uh-huh. from shame. Uh-huh. Um, so if you're in a relationship and the person is putting you down, uh-huh. like in the way you were, absolutely uh, a partner, mm-hmm. that could result in a violent physical explosion. Absolutely. And we would say, oh, that man is a, is abusive. Yeah. But if the woman had been saying to him, you're a piece of shit, you're, I don't know why I ever married you, you uh-huh. pencil dick and son of yeah, a bitch. Yeah, 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 Which, by the way, it some happens. guys I've pay read, for. They, they want to yeah. hear women uh-huh. say uh-huh. that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if you heard uh-huh. the humiliatrix I uh-huh. had on the podcast. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I guess I, I'm not trying to excuse anything. No, I like where you're going. But I'm just saying there are lots of ways for abuse to play out. There are. And what we tend to look at are the things we can see, mm-hmm. the bruises, the yep. broken bones, yep. the broken dishes. Yep. We can't see the ego destruction yeah. Yeah. or the spiritual destruction yeah. Yeah. like what your father yeah. did to you. We, you don't, that doesn't leave marks, so it's yeah. really hard for the legal system to get involved. 100%. Yeah, even like if Child Protective Services, which visited our home a couple of times, yeah, if there's nothing there, what are they going to do? Um, I don't know if this would answer it. You know, my thought on that is it's not that it's not that women aren't capable of doing exactly what you said and not that that isn't damaging. But as an adult, we have options that we don't have as a kid. So I'm just really speaking from, Hmm. you know, my treatment perspective of that. So so if let's say I'll just, you know, use myself. So somebody is calling me names or put downs. And actually, this is a uh, something in my relationship that with my wife. That's on par with. I don't think anything could be more damaging. And so out of all my relationships, that's been a stated boundary up front that, listen, I can have you be upset and angry with me. You have full range of emotional expression. The delivery needs to be delivered like this. I'm really pissed right now. I'm really angry. I'm upset with you. I don't want to speak right now. I want to come back to this later. I can hear all of that. You know, I'm disappointed, all of that. What I can't hear is you're a piece of shit, you're fucking scum, you know, that stuff is, is, is no go territory. Right. I mean, and so if that were to happen to me, I've got a boundary around that. I would not stay. So mm. my feedback to the guys who would make the kind of, you know, counter argument that you're making is, is that you all, 
if you had an option to leave and didn't, you cash in your vic- victim card. There it is. So if right. you're being hurt mm. by somebody and verbal hurts count, and we know this from the research, by the way. So, so when we look at, so are you familiar with the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experience? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's so, powerful. Yeah. So apparently, and I was just doing some continuing ed, um, and I think it was Basil Vanderkolk was talking about uh, some of the new data. When you separate those categories of abuse in terms of, you know, so sexual abuse or physical abuse and all that stuff, and you look at, does one of them weight higher than the other? Because mm. historically, the ACE. In terms of subsequent damage. Absolutely. Right. So we know, because the original reports for the ACEs, if you have an ACE score of four, for example, you're 1,220% more likely to experience depression. Explain you know? what, what that means. Okay, a, so. A score of four. So if, so there's, uh, it's, a, it's a 10 item questionnaire that's looking at particular types of childhood ab- adversity. So was a parent ever, you know, uh, beat or had objects thrown at or something like that in the home? Was there a parent who ever uh, was incarcerated, you know, during your first 18 years of life? I should have specified that. Um, did you grow up with an alcoholic or a drug addict problem drinker? Um, were you sexually uh, molested by anybody five years or older? So these are the type of questions that are in the ACE inventory. And mm-hmm. um, the higher the, your score is, meaning the more things that are affirmative in your life, the more long-term consequences. And that matter of fact that we have, I think now that, um, that I believe that data set is a better predictor of the top 10 most common causes of death than anything that exists in the medical field. And yet right. the medical field is still kind of in the dark with this stuff. And it's not just psychological stuff. It's not Absolutely. just depression. Yeah, yeah, it's also yeah. cancer and all. Absolutely yeah. physical. Yeah. yeah. Because when we repress, we repress everything, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a system. Um, and so, where the hell was I going with that? So we were talking about um, um, ACE. Oh, I was talking about. Oh, so so if you separate that out, apparently, the, most people when you ask them what's what's the most damaging of those components, so we know that all of it's damaging. But what's most damaging? Being humiliated. So mm. when you talked about shame, you were actually right on the head that that, in terms of the psychological damage that would show up physically manifested down the road, maybe in cancer. Shame would be a better predictor of that than even sexual abuse could be in yeah. some cases. We can't just throw it all in a bucket, you know. I mean, well, sexual abuse often results in shame. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah. But but if you were told yeah. you're a piece of shit, if you were told that you're never going to be anything, if you were put down and constantly dehumanized in that way, that verbal way, that that is actually greater than the physical damage, which is what most of society thinks. If there's no physical abuse, then, you know, yeah. there really wasn't much abuse. Right. Yeah. Interesting how it manifests in so many different ways. You know, we, I think most people would quickly believe like, yeah, okay, if you humiliate a kid and they, they might grow up and be depressed or, yeah, yeah. or hyper ambitious yeah. or whatever. Um, but to think that it's also generates diabetes, obesity, yeah, you know, like all sorts of things that seem to be unrelated. But it just reinforces the point that the mind is not separate from the body. It's all, Absolutely. we're all one yeah. spiritual, mm-hmm. physical, mental. Well, we can feel it because there's a, physi- we can feel physiologically when we feel sad. The body goes into a response. So if yeah. you have, you know, overwhelming grief or sadness, the body has a response to that. So yeah. we all feel that. And so typically, you know, tears will well up in a person's eyes is a pretty normal response to sadness. Well, we're acculturated to go, that's a, you know, push that back down. 
I just don't see how we can be at war with our biology and not suffer consequences. Right. And that's what I see happening. And I yeah. see that that being also the key to liberation. Somehow we have to stop this war with our biology. Hmm. Body's trying to get something out and we're going, nope, you got to hold that in. How could that not manifest sickness? Just from a, just a thinking standpoint for yeah. me it just seems obvious yeah you had physiological issues as a kid oh yeah so um yeah i was hospitalized five times by the time i was 16 uh i almost lost my life it oh this is an interesting point so so my first um so a lot of medical trauma too so it wasn't just in the home so i've so my a score would be a perfect 10 uh, well i nine or ten depending on you know one item and how you would score it um but a big part of the trauma that doesn't exist on that ACE inventory is medical trauma. And I see a lot of that in my practice as well. So I woke up early from my very first surgery, which was a tonsillectomy, um, age six. And uh, they had completed it, but I was still covered in blood um, and I couldn't speak. And, you know, as practice, which I don't agree with, is we, you know, back then we lie to kids and say, oh, you're going to get ice cream and you have all this great stuff, you know, to, to try to coax you into it. Uh, for one, you ain't eating no damn ice cream back then. At least I wasn't. Um, and so you wake up and you've got all these masked people around you. You're six. You know, it feels like you've been abducted. Couldn't speak. So my voice was gone. Um, they brought my mom in. My dad was nowhere to be found because this is just how he kind of operates. Very neglectful again. So you wouldn't think, well, you didn't do anything. Well, that's the problem. He didn't do anything, mm. you know, and a lot of this too. So, um, so she got sick. She threw up. She saw me. And they sent her home. So I had to, you know, the surgery on one hand, but I was by myself as a six-year-old trying to manage that emotional magnitude. So, um, which is interesting because some of the times, like when I've been doing my own therapeutic work, that stuff pops up when I'm intending to actually work on another issue because it seems more relevant. A lot of my psychedelic work has been medically focused, even though that hasn't been my attention. I'm reliving surgical procedures. So that was the first one. And then when I was age 10, um, I had spinal meningitis and almost lost my life. It went misdiagnosed a couple of times, missed nine weeks of school. Um, and I remember at the very end teetering on death and life. Um, and I remember kind of dipping over and coming back and dipping over and coming back. Um, as an aside, that death is a hell of a lot easier than psychological work is, um, I found. Um, not to say that I want either one of them. I mean, they both sucked, but that... But some of the stuff I've had to experience in my own therapeutic work has been much more challenging than that. Um, so that was that was one thing. Then, then, then what? Then, then, actually, then the meningitis and almost die in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think so it's because yeah. of your, the age you were? Um. Well, I think part of it is because of the, some of the dissociative qualities, even though I wasn't fully dissociated, that we can numb out. And when we have to process trauma, as far as I'm concerned, you got to feel the shit you couldn't feel as a kid, that it wasn't safe enough or you didn't have the capacity mm -hmm. for it. Um, and so there's heavy lifting. And so right. there's no free pass, free lunch. If you're going to try to recover from that, and there's people that will argue with me. I'm in the minority in my field when I say what I just said. Um, so... It's like you don't fully register the depth of that experience, perhaps, when you're young, um, just out of safety, out of survival, out of your nervous system taking over and creating more of a dissociative response. Um, so that could explain some of it. But um, just I, I think emotional pain is Trump's physical pain. Mm. Yeah, They register in the same nervous system, but for me, emotional pain, if we really 
sit with it is is greater um it has been in my life um but yeah to continue you know to answer the question and then um so then i had a uh yeah so my tonsils had taken out it's interesting my dad so um he uh had a so i had an appendix attack and they almost ruptured he just left me to go to a bronco game you know Um, i couldn't move i couldn't get off the couch fucking guy just left and then, you know, I'm begging one of his, you know, girlfriends of the week to like, I need to go to the hospital. So, um, and I got there and of course that, you know, nick of time. So that was when I was in um, middle school and then I was hospitalized for asthma um, two other times. Um, yeah, after that. So, and then I moved out of the house, never been back to the hospital. Yeah. I still have a little bit of asthmatic symptoms, but no nebulizers, no things like that. Yeah. So again, it speaks to my own experience mirrors that which the research bores out that, yeah, this, this physical stuff that uh, manifests from that emotional repression and just the abuse that we endure or that we can experience. You, know? you, you mentioned, uh, what did you say, cathartic uh, experiences or, or yeah. you know, to, to respond or, or <clears throat> create a space where the primary emotion can be expressed and yep. then the secondary issues won't manifest. Yeah. How have you done that in your life? How have you created space to vent those primary, the, you know, the, the rage or the fear or the shame or whatever yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. Obviously you have because yeah. those symptoms haven't returned. You're not. Yeah. Um, and if they do, I'm aware of it. That's the nice thing is like, I can, I can sense it like, Oh, there's something there. And then that usually activates me or, or, or gives me something to go. Okay. Let's note this. If this doesn't, you know, if this continues, then you need to get back into treatment. So good therapy. Mm. And then that might lead to, well, what the hell is good therapy? I don't think CBT is good therapy for this kind of stuff. You know, I don't think that the cognitive behavioral stuffs are, are, are workarounds. Right. Um, and you're talking about CBT is essentially finding a way to live with the situation. Uh-huh. Think your way through it absolutely. versus resolving yeah, yeah, it, right? Yeah. So, what are you doing? Some sort of deep Jungian therapy? Yeah. Or? So, so um, one of the benefits of my this is going to sound like I'm not answering your question to begin here. Uh, one of the one of the beneficial things of the doctoral work that I did, I didn't finish that. I don't want to be misleading here, um, but uh, was uh, reading the book on the great psychotherapy debate by. Um, Bruce Wampold, who did a meta-analysis of all these different therapeutic techniques to try to tease out what techniques work, what don't work, what mm. styles work better, you know, does, does union work better than this and that and the other. And basically, from the research of the research, what he deduced, what, he is, what the statistics showed was that 99% of the therapeutic change was not attributed to technique, not attributed to therapeutic uh, um, formula so cbt mdr whatever is attributed to the therapeutic relationship right which would make sense because that's where the wounds happen the wounds happen because there's a relationship rupture well the repair happens in context of relationship so i always say that you know a lot of the good therapy that i've experienced is when i feel like somebody gives a shit to hear my story and doesn't try to shut it down because of their own fear Mm. of going into that territory which happens and it's happened to me i remember at one point when i was working with a lady who actually helped me through many things of a lesser magnitude but with the dad stuff when i was getting into that territory and things were coming up and i wasn't resisting so much um then it and i'll never forget this the phrase that ended that and that was i think you need medications and what that was is, this is too much. I can't handle this. This is too much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This isn't okay, is how I heard it. They might not have meant that, but 
this is not the right way to go. But everything in my being said, this has got to, I have two choices here. I either keep the pain in or I get it the hell out. I mean, I kind of knew that um, just intuitively. Like this, this, it's just like if you get, you know, eat something bad, you get, you know, stomach flu or something like that. I don't enjoy throwing up, but there's something that says, man, you're going to be in trouble if you fight that, if you fight again your biology. So on an emotional level, it's very similar to me. Mm. So with that, um, so that was, so that let me know I had more work to do right there. Um, on, you know, in that, in that domain of the father relationship and the wounds that I had experienced. But then that person, I ran up to as far as they could go. That's probably what prompted me then to later, um, go down and do ayahuasca the, for, for the first time. Mm. So that was my initial intention was I got to, I, I got to get in here, you know, and, and work this out. And it's such horrible territory that I don't want to go there either. I know I have to, but I don't want to go there. So I need a push in ayahuasca. And if you need a push, it'll give you a push if you're ready for it. And how did you feel about, you know, having this experience of being in the, in the, not the control or the hands, but, but with a therapist, someone yeah, who, who's yeah. guiding yeah. you and reinforcing the good parts yeah. of what you're trying to do. How did you feel about going down to Peru and having no therapist? Nobody knew you. Yeah. You're on your own. Yep. Did that feel? Well, it wasn't. It didn't feel ideal. Like I thought. I always thought like what would be ideal. Hmm. And uh, and I'll get to my most recent therapeutic experience, which actually did uncover some more of the anger that I didn't realize was there, and I got to work that out. So I'll head to there in a second. But going down to Peru, I always felt like if there was an option to have one-on-one psychedelic experience, that would have been the best for me. I always, but that didn't exist, and there wasn't a treatment. What like, would that look like? So, like, if you were working one-on-one with a shaman versus in a group, because so most of these oh, sessions are all group. They're ceremonial-based. Right. And so you're still kind of on your own. So you'd be doing it with a shaman, not mm-hmm. with a therapist. Exactly. Uh. And I still hold shamanism and probably the high, true shamanism, people that have put the time in, people who have done the tenure apprenticeship and 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 respect the arts and have the capacity for it i think that that's probably still the highest order of the healing modalities that we have unfortunately there's a lot of nefarious characters and you know and all that stuff i was very meticulous and you know choosing where i went so i felt like i minimized those risks i was purposely looking for negative reviews negative experiences and i had previously decided on a place that i then ended up finding some bad stuff out about and then so so i I just a lot of work knowing that you know so part of that's the preparation so i felt confident in my ability to tease out or to minimize some risk there Mm. but then when i got down there what was interesting is my second ceremony was the most horrific challenging thing i have ever ever done if you took all my traumas all the original experiences and threw them in a blender, they would not have amounted to how difficult that second ceremony that I had was. I, and so there was a moment where, and I'm skipping over a lot of the detail, but I, I lost all bodily function. I couldn't do anything. I could not blink my eyes. I couldn't breathe. I was suffocating in the whole you know, uh, visual field. Every time I'd breathe, I would breathe in the actual visual field and I'd start suffocating. Um, it was horrendous, agonizingly painful, psychologically, physically, just everything was shutting down and just getting intense and dark and dark and dark and dark. So I remember having this feeling of, so the helpers 
because I called for Bonio to go to the, I thought I had to go to the bathroom, but the, during that whole debacle, it came on so fast, I couldn't do anything after that. So I was blocking the bathroom door. They could, they finally get me out of there and I'm laying on my bed and I'm like, I'm not going back to that ceremony. I was like stiff as a board. I was completely frozen. Um, and, and so then they couldn't really carry me. And I, with a little bit of resistance that I could muster, um, I used cause I didn't want to go back there. And so they would come back in and periodically and check on me. Well, when you're in that psychedelic space, time is out the damn window a little bit. So you don't really know where the, you know, what really, how long has happened. But what was fascinating for me was right before they had come back to check in. And remember, I, I can't blink. They're shining a flashlight in my eyes previously. They come, you know, so he comes back in and, but right before I did it, I had this, you know, not like a schizophrenic voice, but like a message that said, you're going to get a chance to use your voice, use it wisely. And, uh, right at that time they came in and, uh, and I could speak, but barely. And all I could say was, you know, get Don Howard. That was the shaman I was working. It just, I just, and it's just repeated like three or four times before I couldn't speak again. So asking for help for me is some shit that I never did. So I had to be in a space where I absolutely could not get out of it, no how, no way, um, which is much, you know, psychological knowledge as I thought I had, I was in way over my head. And so he came. That was part of the healing thing, that I asked for help and it showed up. Because I needed help so much in my childhood and it never showed up. Mm. And so I just said, I'm not fucking asking anymore. I'm on my own, I'm gonna do it myself. But that's not a sustainable way of living. So I ran myself down, you know. It's, you know, there are times in my 30s where I felt like I was 90 and I would say that sincere, you know, sincerely. So ask him for the help. But now when he came in, I couldn't move my body. I couldn't do shit. If, and side note, with my dad, I would always get punished for being sick. So that was another thing. So if I needed help, like, and it inconvenienced him, that's where the shit would really hit the fan. Mm. So I'm right back in the situation where I need help. Mm. I'm feeling like a burden. All this stuff is coming up. So part of the healing was me going to that space of, you know, back, back into that deep feeling. But then part of it was having a person show up, not shame, not humiliate, not be put out, kind, compassionate, touch that was not sexualized, that was not mean, that was not not anything you know if somebody wanted to molest me in that moment i couldn't have done shit about it and mm. and we hear of stories where that happens down when people go to peru um you know um that, that, that that's happened to people so so that absolutely could have happened to me so i could have been further damaged in that experience but you're asking what helped so it was a combination of my willingness to go there uh, my capacity to go there, but then also the capacity of the other individual I was working with. So there was a healing opportunity. So I always say that if trauma happens in the context of relationship, healing has to happen in the context of relationship. Mm. Um, so there's only so much we can do on our own. So when mm. we say, you know, what kind of work have you done? You know, now there's sometimes where things come up and I try to sit with the discomfort. Um, and sometimes there's nobody around and you got to work that through. But that's not... You know, you'll stay stuck there, I think. You, you have to find somebody who can be with you in that space. And then lastly, what I would say is that most recently, um, there's a place down in Denver who um, does cannabis-assisted psychotherapy, and I wanted to, you know, try that. And uh, that was one-on-one. -on -one. So that was a psychedelic therapy that um, actually rivaled ayahuasca. Most people wouldn't believe that. I was in territory in some ways more pronounced than that, uh, even deeper down. Um, hmm. So intention with these substances matters in the context. There was one point in time where I was 
holding the hand of my therapist while I was raging, while I was screaming. And he never moved, he never, he never fled. So again, working that out in a relational context that this was okay, because it never was okay. So some of it again is, is, is the individual's willingness to go there and some of it's the, the person you're with and not everybody can do that. So, so I can't credit you know, my healing to just me. Um, it's been, I've been fortunate enough, I've been diligent enough to do the research and try to find the people who can go into those territories. And then um, I've been lucky enough that they've existed. Uh, when I've needed it most, and so, yeah, so multiple episodes, different different qualities, different different components. It's always been emotionally and physically very very difficult. But Do you go always... back to the same place in Peru, or you go to a different place? So I've so the two times in Peru, I went to the same place. Yeah. Are you comfortable naming it? Or? Yeah, um, I don't. I think they may be doing retreats right now, but um, but the shaman that, that that owns the place, Don Howard Spirit Quest, is the name of the place. Mm. Um, He's, uh, he's just got done battling some cancer. And mm. so he'll do that till he dies, but he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's older now, and I have a debt of gratitude to him. Mm. Two people primarily, him, and then a, a place called Innate Path in, in, in Lakewood, Colorado, and Trevor's the guy that I worked with down there. He, he is phenomenal. Yeah, phenomenal. Those are the two yeah. most important people in my healing journey. It's, it's tough, you know, people reach out to me a lot asking for a referral to therapists or, you know, what sort of therapy they should do or, you know, where they should go in Peru and all this. And it's, uh, it's so hard because of what you said. It's, it's not about the, the technique. It's not, it's not, it's, it's about the connection you form with that person, if it's real or not. And if Mm -hmm. they're willing to go where you need to go or not, it's a really hard you know, like there you were in that situation when you were ready to deal with some of the most important stuff for you, and that particular therapist couldn't go there. But you'd already invested a lot of money and time, oh, and yeah. she knew all that backstory. Yeah, and now and for you to go start over yeah, again. Yeah. yeah. Well, so for me, you know, I would comment on that that um, I never felt like it was starting over because. Mm. There wasn't a lot of charge to the material that I already had shared. And then it helped me tease that out. So if you're overwhelmed by the material that you're sharing content-wise, um, then you probably hadn't worked any of it through. And I don't mm. see it as an all or nothing. It's kind of like a dimmer switch. I see. So, because um, I get that from people, even in my own practice, that'll say like, you know, I don't want to start over again. Um, and it is a pain in the ass, but I never, f- you know, and I guess that... Uh, there were, there were still benefits from this. So it wasn't like I didn't get anything. It just, I got to the end of the road with that individual. Right. Yeah, they were yeah. very pivotal to me. They actually helped me get out of that screwy PhD program that I was in, <laughs> that I was highly addicted to and couldn't uh, get the fuck out. And so, yeah. um, so very grateful because I was destructive as shit then. You know? So you're, yeah. you say you were addicted to the PhD. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm hinting at things that you mentioned in your email that you haven't talked about yet. Mm-hmm. Um, before you decided to become a therapist, yeah. you were trying to work your shit out uh-huh. by being hyper successful and ambitious. And do you want to talk about that? Absolutely. Yeah, no. So, and it's funny because, you know, I had the narrow view that most people do with addiction. And that is that uh, it's substance related. And if there's no substance there, then addiction isn't, it doesn't exist. So I was actually doing my CAC certification, my certified addiction counselor certification when it hit me. And uh, I had just ended a relationship that was uh, with an amazing lady. I mean, 
you know, phenomenal. And, um, and a big part of it was, is that at that time that the, the kids conversation had come up and, uh, and I was like, you know, I'm working on this program and I'm doing this stuff. And, you know, she was approaching 30 and I thought, man, this just isn't right. And so everything in the relationship was fine other than that. But it felt mm. like if I didn't know that that's what I wanted. And she was like, well, you know, I can, I'll wait, you know, I'll support you through this program. Um, but I just want to know that that's an option on the table and I couldn't get there. So we decided yeah. to split and it was, it was painful because it was amp, you know, cause it was, that, you know, it, you don't stop loving someone. No. And, yeah. and, uh, but what was interesting to me is I had all these goals that when I met her, I was always going to hit these numbers when I was going to do, you know, this and that. And I was going to, you know, all this kind of bullshit. And I was going to get a 4.0 because I hadn't got it yet. All this just nonsense. What's a 4.0? Like a 4.0 in grad school. Oh, you know? oh, so, okay. like, I'm, you know, now I'm going to, you know, get that in my Ph.D. program and blah, 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 blah. So one of the one of the things, one of the first signs where it hit me was I was sitting on my floor and I had everything booked down to like the minute. So I would, when I would check my mail, when I was, it was obsessive to like structured is what you would like the most highly structured life that you could ever do. Cause I was working full time and I was traveling 800 miles a week, going back and forth from Greeley to Denver to do this program. Uh, and just my system started shutting down. I was always sleeping two to four hours a night and I wasn't using any substances to combat that. I mean, it was just willpower. And I'd fallen asleep at the wheel a couple of times, too, and wrecked cars, almost, oh. fucking almost killed somebody. And every time something like that would happen, I would, I couldn't, it was like, no, now I have to make it worth it. So I lost this relationship, mm. I have to make it worth it, and mm. I wrecked this car, and I got to make it worth it. And so I got it. And it was, the mo- it was one of the more terrifying times of my life, because I absolutely knew that this is not what I need to be doing, and it wasn't really going to help me in any way, but I couldn't quit it. And, uh, you know, so to finish the one story as I was sitting on my floor and I was opening my, you know, my mail and all this shit. And I got my grades cause I had to submit it for some, some damn thing. I don't remember what it was. I needed my transcript. And so sure enough, you know, I hit that goal and then I got this W nine from a job that I had done that put me over this financial goal and this, that, and the other. And, um, and then there was nobody there. And that, uh, like that was the big moment where I was like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you know, and you're not getting out of this on your own, so you've got to get some help. And so the lady that could only get me so far helped me work that out, and she could help me work with some of that and then put the pieces together that was also about dad. So a lot of that drive was about me shutting down criticism. Mm. So I'm going to put the fucking bar so far out of reach that you can never say you're nothing again. Yeah. It was my defense. That's what I learned later. At the time, I didn't know that, but that was my defense. So again, want the relationship with my dad, but want to shut the criticism down. How am I going to do that? Make sure that there is nothing to fucking criticize. Yeah. That's what I learned later, but I couldn't see that shit. How, how common do you think that sort of thing is in highly successful people? I think it's real common. Yeah. So do I. Yeah. Now, when I say it, I... I I imagine I come across as a lazy person justifying their laziness, you know, <laughs> um, but I really believe it. The people I know who are super high achievers with very few exceptions are driven by something that's essentially sad and like unattainable. I would. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm going to throw it out a hundred percent. I just, yeah, I, I don't see how it could be any other way, um, which is, Really ironic, isn't it, that those are the people that we emulate. Those are the winners, Mm -hmm. right? The Mm -hmm. people with a billion dollars and 
Yeah. When this might go back to things that you talk about in your podcast all the time. If the winners aren't winning, then why is that? Right. And so maybe we just touched on part of why that is, is because it doesn't satisfy our deep psychological need. Um, and it's a perpetuation of some other, you know, psychological illness yeah. that manifested itself and, you know, a lack of nurturance. Uh, you ever read, uh, you, you follow tennis at all? Not, not much. Andre Agassi. I know the person. Do, yeah. do you know his I don't know story? story huh? It's crazy, man. He wrote he wrote an autobiography. I forget what it's called, but um, his father was an immigrant from Greece or somewhere, uh, and I guess his father saw these tennis players on TV making a bunch of money, and he said, "Oh." That's what you're going to do. You're going to be a tennis player. Yeah. His father had never played tennis yeah. in his life, didn't know anything about tennis. We was just like, man, you can make a lot of money, you know, you don't have to bang your head against anyone. Mm-hmm. That's what you're going to do. And he just trained Andre to be a tennis player. And like you take him out on the court with one of those machines that yeah. shoots the balls yeah. and he'd turn it up to the highest speed and just oh, yeah. shoot hundreds of balls at him and you hit him with him. And yeah. Andre hated tennis, hated it, hated yeah. everything about it. Wow. Nothing but negative associations, yeah. but his desire to please his father and to prove him wrong. And, you know, that rage fueled him and yep. propelled him yeah. to the heights of, yeah. of yeah. that particular sport. Anyway, it, it just always stands to me as his autobiography is really interesting because it's it's simultaneously the story of extreme success yeah. and absolute failure. Yes. Because he didn't give a fuck about yeah. any of it. Because it wasn't about him. His soul was exactly. hijacked. Yeah, right. he, was, he was robbed. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Interesting guy. He was cheated out of his own life and even figuring out what that was. Yeah. 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 So even if you win, yeah. you've lost. Well, and it makes sense how that can develop, though, because we come into the world extremely dependent, um, and our survival is at risk if that attachment relationship is abandoned sufficiently. Yeah. We perish. Well, so. especially in this society Absolutely. where we only have one, maybe two. Mm-hmm. A hunter-gatherer society where you got 20 yes. adults who all love you and take care yes. of you yes. and you get tired of this one, you go you know, over to the hut of that one mm-hmm. and you're welcome. That creates That's a, really a different kind point. of mind. That's a really good point. Yeah. 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 It's like all the... You know, and, and then we grow up and say, oh, you need to satisfy all my needs. Yep. So we replicate that you know, parent-child exclusivity mm-hmm. in our emotional lives, which then perpetuates the craziness. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what's the way out? Um, it just, you know, uh, for me, I guess, you know, it's about finding, well, who, you know, who, who am I really then? You know, once we wake up to the idea that, well, like, maybe I'm living a life that's not mine for some, you know. To so obtain, when did that yeah. moment happen? Was it the moment you just described? Well, yeah, I mean, I you were making been, a bunch of money. It's and, been, a, well, yeah, nothing worked. Well, here's what, <laughs> so at one point, I was in the lending field. So I buy back, so my undergrad's in accounting, and I was pretty good at finance. Um, and so I got in the, you know, a sales position, and I was doing, you know, it was partly how I was prior to grad school. And, uh. So I was, and I did pretty well. Um, I think I would just mentioned I was in the lending profession, and you know, and I had, and I, I had, I remember this vividly. So I had a commission check 
that pretty much wiped out my last year's salary combined. And it was like 18 grand. And I remember coming home from that, like driving home in just full on tears. And I could not explain it. I was completely lost. Like, what the fuck? So this was, this was a moment of great success yes, for you. Yeah, according to the according and to the standard narrative. And yet you were weeping. Uncontrollably. Like, like I probably should have pulled the hell off the road. Uh, but could not figure out why to save my life. So hmm. I came up with the Americanized or Westernized you know, solution that it just wasn't enough. So you, so you <laughs> so recognized that it wasn't scratching the itch, but you figured you just needed to scratch harder. I just needed more. Yeah. So then, you know, luckily by the time I had a $50,000 commission month, uh, I'd realized this is a fucking no-win situation. Thank God that happened at 25 because mm-hmm. I see people that are running that shit at 50. And I think it's a lot harder to recover from that. Right. Um, you know, especially if now you have dependence on that stuff. Thank God it was just me at that point. So I didn't have the other things to tie me into that. So that was part of it. I just couldn't ignore the feeling that went so counterbalanced to everything I was told that I should feel, you know, or was taught that I should feel, you know. That in so that, that's a real pivotal insight where Huge. you say, okay, the, everything that I, the goals that I've been pursuing yeah. aren't going to work. No. It's a rebirth. Like, what did, how did you reconfigure your life at that point? You know, um, so that one, uh, I, th- I think honestly, that's where there was a little bit of shape shifting. And so I kind of deluded myself there. And because that was right about the time when, um, you know, I was entering into grad school. So there was a four. Well, so then I was going for therapeutics. Uh, Yeah. So I was going for. So you already knew you wanted to do counseling. And, you know, and I was in and out of counseling throughout these times. So my my kind of normal pattern was, okay, notice something doesn't something's off here. I just made a bunch of money. and I'm in tears. That's that shouldn't that's something that signals something. And then let me see if I can't figure it out because I always start there. And if I can't, then I'll go get help. So I'm not so stubborn anymore where I'll just keep, I'm going to get it myself. I don't mm. do that shit. I'll look for mm. somebody to help me out with that right. stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, that, that likely was, you know, again, one of those times. But initially, I think that uh, that one, I just knew that it wasn't the money thing. But I didn't, I didn't, I don't know that I necessarily at that time knew what was all of what was underneath it. So I just abandoned the behavior. So this would be a good example of behavior modification therapy. I wasn't in therapy to do that particular behavior modification. I just know this wasn't working, so I'm going to change it. But I hadn't figured out all the underpinnings of what was driving that. That didn't happen until I got out of the PhD program. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Have you worked with a lot of vets? Tons. Yeah. That's actually been some of the most rewarding work that I've done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of pain in that community. A tremendous amount. In you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting about the veteran population, too. One of the things that they taught me, um, if you're a clinician who's not learning from your clients, then that's, that's a bad sign, um, and that, that perplexed them. But this kind of scenario that I'm about to describe happened over and over and over again. And I think it speaks to why it's hard to psychologically get over stuff or figure things out because there's a delayed reaction often. So they're in combat. They're in horrific situations, seeing absolutely horrible shit. They come back. There's no more bombs going off. There's no more anything happening. You know, they're now maybe re- you know, reconnected with family and friends and, and loved ones. And what I saw that was common was about six to eight months 
post-deployment, most of them do pretty well. And then all of a sudden, one day they can't get out of bed. Mm. And they're completely perplexed, which would make sense because things were going fine. I'm not in a combat zone anymore. Everything is improved. Where did this tsunami of depression come in or this tsunami of anxiety? Why now? My best guess is that, so I saw that delayed reaction consistently. My best guess is, is that the nervous system, so they're not really registering what they're actually taking in. And I think that happens for children in abusive situations. It happens for combat veterans. They're not really registering what's coming because the, the organism has to survive. Yeah, that's thunder. It's outside. It's not thunder, huh? <laughs> so, so, um, so they're not really registered, although their nervous system is taking that damage. Yeah. And I don't think the nervous system will go into a state of repair or to try to purge that material that, that, that they were taking on until it's safe enough to do so. Uh. So that's my that's my. So it's theory. almost like that's the body guess. relaxes enough to feel the pain. Absolutely. So yeah. it, it moves out of hyper alert. It moves out of right. hyper arousal. Right. That hyper alert survival mechanism, but it has all that pain stored into it, and now that wants to come out, but it throws people off because it's it's because it doesn't make sense. You know. Can you legally, if if someone's listening to this podcast and and they appreciate your approach, can you work with them legally out of state? How's that? You know, so my thought on that is, um, uh, I, I would, I, I wouldn't, and the reason why is because I think that the way that that would happen would be through a technological medium that just serves as way too much of a barrier. Mm. But what I would say, um, and on my website I've got a you know pretty loquacious article which I am anyway in my writing and in my speaking, that uh, that you know some ideas of questions to ask therapists, things to you know pitfalls to avoid, oh, okay. things of that nature. Because even when I moved up from the front range to here, I had a lot of requests from people saying I can't find anybody that's doing this and. You know, in my own work, I have to hunt for people, and it's a little bit like dating. You got to go through a handful of people before you find a good fit um, and somebody who's competent. And so, questions like, you know, have you done any of your own work? What does your therapeutic process look like? People should be asking me that, and I barely ever get that question asked. Mm. I, that's, I would not recommend anybody working with anybody who hasn't had some couch time, as mm. I call it. You know, you, you know. Um, because they can only take you as far as they've gone themselves. And I've even seen that limitation in my own practice. Yeah. So with that, but what I would say is that if you're looking for coping, a cognitive behavioral therapist and a screen might not be a bad thing. But I just, I know that that's so limited in this kind of trauma-related work stuff that it's hard for me to get behind that or participate in it it's just because it doesn't feel like it's, it feels like I'm cheating them on some level. You know, symptomatic. Not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not given, not given a resolution pathway. So in terms of the, the ways in which we can try to create change in our life and a therapist could help us facilitate that change, we've got, there's over a thousand different therapeutic techniques I heard, I don't, and verified that. And they all have some crazy acronym, but all of them are gonna either target behaviors, cognitions or thoughts, or emotions and physiology. So that's it. That's what we have to try to improve our lives. If we want to feel better, we can either try to act our way out of feeling better. We can make some dietary changes, maybe develop a yoga practice. And I'm not poo-pooing those. Those are all excellent. Do them. Um, I just don't know that they're sufficient to resolve trauma, um, for example. Or we can try to, you know, think our way by doing some positive psychology stuff. I recommend people don't do that. 
um, because I think that can further, that can actually sink people further into their, their, their bullshit. Um, you know, diluting oneself, I don't agree with. Um, so if you're, if you're going to try to make yourself be grateful when you don't feel grateful, um, I think there's a danger there that's not, that's not often recognized. Just further submerges the issue. The bullshit. Yeah. And then you got to climb out of that. We need truth. Truth is healing, not, yeah. not bullshit. I'm all for moving towards positive. But genuine positivity right. as a product of doing the fucking work, yeah. not from working around it and just making yourself believe that things are better than they are. Yeah. Your body's going to tell you if it's good or not. So, and then the last approach is obviously doing something that really involves you feeling the damn emotions you're trying not to feel, allowing that to come up. And so a lot of the somatic therapies, I think, do a better job with mm. that. Um, you know, so somatic experiencing, you know, Peter Levine's work or Basil Vanderkolk stuff, um, so anything that's that, that's less talk, actually, more feeling, more sensing, mm. the, if you give the body enough space and you have a safe environment, that material is going to come up. I mean, the body's going to want to get rid of it. And that can you know take shape of shaking and trembling and convulsing if it's somatically orientated work. Um, and then just the, the purging of emotion, just a lot of emotionality stuff to it, if, uh, both in my work and the work with others. So, for example, I've never had an email come to me from somebody who had worked with me 10 years ago who said, I really love that technique that you showed me, and that's why I'm writing you today. It's always, thanks for being there, and thanks for listening to my story, and thanks mm-hmm. for not shaming me or humiliating me and letting me get that stuff out. And that's essentially what the guys taught me, too. I got good at predicting who was going to reoffend and who wasn't just based on could they get into their feelings. So I'm convinced that's the, that's the true path. So my recommendation is, you know, if what I'm saying makes sense here today, um, I wish there was a shortcut. I'll still keep looking for one. And if I find one, mm. I'll be the first one that goes, hey, man, it, here it is. But I've tried a lot of different shit, and I don't think that there's a legit one. I think we've got to feel the stuff that we've got repressed. We've got to find it and feel it, and we have to have a safe enough environment to do that. And, that, and not all therapists are safe enough to do that. If they haven't done any of their own work, it, you, know, you want your lifeguard to be able to swim. <laughs> and not be afraid of the water. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, do you have a list of recommended readings on your website? Yeah, I do. Um, so I've got a therapeutic, or what, so I've got a services page, which is just kind of what I do and the symptoms that I work with. Um, but then I've got a, a resource library. And so there's the books and videos, that ACE inventory stuff that we talked about. Right. There's a direct link to that questionnaire right. there. Um, and I'm updating it a little bit more frequently than I have in the past. What's well. the website? So, uh, www dot nd which stands for new directions the number four and then the word life the company that i own is new directions for life so i wanted to abbreviate so www.nd the number four the word life.com and everything that i have is that we've talked about is really on there yeah thanks for doing this sean yeah i appreciate it thanks for having me cool guy huh i like him sean dinkle uh www nd4life.com check them out get that reading list uh one thing i forgot to mention at the beginning of this is that i'm doing a reddit ama tomorrow october 1st at uh, 10 a.m pacific time that's 1 p.m eastern time and if you're in the mountains or chicago you can figure that shit out for yourself uh or if you're in australia i don't know get up in the middle of the night you can ask me anything I, I don't know how these things work. I don't think I'll answer anything, but I'll answer legitimate questions. Uh, yeah, I, the only things I don't answer, it's, it's uh, something I come up with a, against a lot, is 
like anything that involves other people. Like I've chosen to do this podcast and to be, you know, a semi-public figure. Um, So that's my choice. But the other people in my life haven't chosen that. So I try to be protective of them. So when people are like, well, you know, like the one thing I always got was, uh, you know, the people wanted to know about my marriage with Casilda in light of Sex at Dawn, like not answering that. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting because I've, I've been reading about AMAs and they say, you have to answer every question. I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. So we'll see how it goes. Anyway, there's an AMA on Reddit tomorrow at 10 a.m. my time Pacific. And uh, Lilo.com, Chris Ryan is the discount code. Thanks for listening to this. I appreciate it. And my mom appreciates it. So here she is. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Take you up in my arms 
if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground